Hi everyone, this is Jordan, and I'm super grateful for everyone that listened in on the last episode. I'm kind of surprised that people listened in, but you know, it is what it is. So, you know, today I'm really excited because I have one of my good friends, Jack, um, and I'll give him <laughs> a quick introduction, but you know, I was able to kind of hold him down, ask him to a co-host with me <laughs> for one episode. So here he is, but as a quick introduction, and I'll give you the luxury, Jack, of keeping your identity secret. Um, Jack is an incoming investment banker at one of the bulge brackets on Wall Street. Uh, he and I have been really good friends since I think even back freshman year now. But you know, over the past few years, Jack and school has been involved in several student organizations, our school's endowment fund, and we've worked together on multiple projects, classes ever since. Am I missing anything, Jack? Uh, I think you nailed it. Yeah. Nice <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so great. Um, Jack and I today will be talking a little bit about our experiences in our kind of final year of college, which is a bit sad to say. We'll be talking a little bit about our interests in financial markets and as a way of a kind of, you know, with GameStop recently, as a disclaimer, <laughs> you know, because of the whole Reddit fiasco, nothing that Jack nor I say constitutes an investment recommendation or should be used for the basis of making an investment decision. And all opinions that me and Jack have are solely our own and are meant for really just entertainment. So kind of going into our first discussion on school, you know, Jack, maybe you could tell a little bit about how, what your experience has been like over the past few years of college. Definitely. So I came into school uh, almost four years ago, trying to figure out what I wanted to do exactly. And I knew it was something in business, but wasn't quite sure what I wanted to pursue. Probably second semester freshman year, first semester sophomore year, I kind of landed on wanting to do finance. And, you know, I had an interest in that, you know, since early high school. And so that kind of naturally became, you know, what I wanted to major in. Um, and then a little later on, I decided to uh, minor in analytics. And so the last couple of years, I've spent a lot of time in our business school, uh, taking a lot of classes there. Um, but obviously, you know, looking back in retrospect, it's interesting to see how, you know, perhaps I would have changed my academic schedule and, you know, course load if I could have, you know, gone back a couple of years. Yeah, no, I, I think we've talked about this many times, but we're, me and Jack are along basically the same major at this point. And uh, we've both kind of really discussed how, you know, Jack would have, has a really big interest in like biology and I have an interest in like sociology or whatever, and you know how we really enjoyed taking non-business, non-finance classes because it's just a better skill set. You know, the knowledge is more like finance is as a major is pretty recent, I would say, compared to like every other you know uh, major. And so, you know, looking back on it, you know, I think one advice we'd probably both give is, you know. 
<laughs> don't be a business major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say um, don't sacrifice, you know, your passions and interests for what you think will get you the farthest upon graduation. You know, I guess part of the reason I chose finance is I thought it would set me up the best. But looking back, I'm not sure. I know it's it's definitely going to help me, but I don't know um, if it would have hurt me a lot, you know, picking something else, like you said, bio or sociology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And like, we're not saying being a business major is bad because we never, like, we both love what we do. Um, and I can see Jack nodding his head here. <laughs> you guys can't see it, but we, we both really love what we do, but there's business has always been kind of like the end goal. And nowadays, like you don't need to be a business major to get into a business field. And so like, yes, being a business major made it easier for us to kind of learn a lot of kind of the basic things like accounting and, you know, financial, how to build a spreadsheet in Excel, but like really those skills, a lot of what we learned, most of it came from our own study or from jobs and very little of it came from the actual major. And like the major is important because it like introduced us and like it helped us kind of really understand we wanted to be finance majors. But, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, if I had known I wanted to do finance in the long run, and I already knew that and I knew what I wanted to do, I probably would have just picked a different major um, because like those other majors are really good for kind of providing unique insights and knowledge into specific fields within finance. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it seems like business is the one kind of general academic section where you could come into it later in your career, having not been in it before, whereas mm -hmm. starting business, it's a lot harder to go into, you know, the hard sciences, the STEM fields, um, you know, and so definitely in retrospect, it would have been interesting if we had pursued a different route. Yeah, or at least a dual degree. <laughs> Definitely. Or even like, uh, change the minor or something. Yeah, exactly. But I, I mean, we, we both really enjoy the analytics minor, especially with, you know, data becoming so big lately, but oh, definitely, you know, definitely. kind of based off our past discussions, you know, if we were to kind of go back in like freshman year, cause we met freshman year during like that stock pitch competition. Yeah. So wrong. <laughs> I think it was, um, the, the beginning of second semester freshman year. Yeah. It was me, oh, yeah. you and Dan. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember that. Yeah, we, uh, I remember that kind of a tangent, but I, I remember we had no idea how to do any sort of financial modeling. <laughs> it was so I, bad. I, I know. I remember, I remember our mentor, Dan, mm -hmm. um, who was a senior at the time. I remember him spending a ton of time with us trying to go through different, you know, how to build models and like, what even is a stock pitch? Like we were, we, we were blind to the entire process. Oh my gosh. We, I remember one night specifically, we had tried to build a DCF and it wasn't even like the three statements. It was just the DCF and we were trying to pull the information somehow, some way, and we just didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, like I asked Dan and he's like, yeah, come over to my suite. I do. I bring my laptop and he just does it in like an hour and something like that. And somehow maybe it's just our school but we made it to the final <laughs> on the <laughs> small home building stock that none of us had known about 
previously, the other guy, you know, Dan, the other Dan, not the mentor, was like, let's do this stock. My uncle says it's cool. And then we do it. And it's like the most difficult stock ever. <laughs> I know, little, little did we realize we we're going to have to value every single house in their portfolio. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We have to know like all of their five different markets and understand how those markets are growing. Like looking back, like it was, that was exciting. That was exciting. Um, you know, doing really get the opportunity to like, like that's what finance is about. Like learning new things, really being challenged and exploring new areas that you didn't know about. Man, like, definitely. I think that's really the biggest appeal of a finance career path. Oh, definitely. And it was also very interesting having to defend a thesis, right? So something like we were completely new to um, the whole question and answer portion of a pitch. Um, no, definitely the most challenging part, but I think that's where you really learn the most. And that's where mm -hmm. the um, satisfaction comes in the end. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree 100%. But kind of going back to the original question, if we were to do something entirely different, like if you were to go back to freshman year and change something, what would you have done differently? Like, let's say in one scenario, you know you're going to end up wherever you're going at the bulge bracket. And then second scenario, you have no idea. Well, knowing that I'd end up at the same place I'll be starting at on graduation, I probably would have um, changed my, I wouldn't have majored in finance. I would have majored in um, something in the bio field, probably something in the mm -hmm. sciences, but uh, maybe MCB or, um, you know, biological sciences. And then I would have minored in something business related while also taking part in some of the more prestigious uh, business organizations and events mm -hmm. so I could get, you know, I could fulfill my, you know, my interests and passions while at the same time still being able to learn the business side of things and, um, you know, network with the right people, build those relationships, um, you know, as well. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And what about if you didn't know? If I didn't know, <laughs> it didn't know where I'd end up. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough to say is hindsight's always 2020, but if I didn't know where I'd end up, I probably would have majored in finance still, but I think I would have, you know, maybe pursued a dual degree or mm. um, changed my minor, either one of those to satisfy my interest in sciences. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. I, I think on my end, you know, finance, there have been many experiences that you and I have been kind of both a part of that, like these small, like club events or uh, situations we were both part of that, like really, I think brought us together, but also were very important for kind of my career in finance. And so kind of looking back on it, if for me personally, I think I would have wanted to, I would have wanted to kind of start my own thing. like. There was a lot of, me and you have talked about this, but at our school, there's kind of preset clubs and they've been around for a while, but none of, none of them really offer any value to students. And like, that's the hardest part about finance is really kind of figuring out where to start and how to kind of learn. And once you kind of have the skill set down, like, you know, how to read like a company's financials, you know, like the revenue minus cost of goods sold is gross profit, you know, that sort of thing. Like that's 
once you have that down, it's like pretty easy, right? And like that was, we, me and Jack had thought about starting a organization we called like Everest Research. And it was like, we were planning to like do a bunch of like, I come from a research background. Jack, Jack appreciates the fundamental research process. And we were like, it would be like, we, we're not, we don't have money for this. Like the endowment is the only like thing on campus that has money. And I know other schools like Columbia, a club could easily get like $300,000 or something to like invest. We get zero. Um, and like, just kind of looking at that, it's just like, there's very few opportunities where you can actually develop any like of the hard technical skills like that. That's very few already for like finance and then like put it to work, like do something interesting, do something different that no one else on school or at, you know, at another school would be doing. And that would give you like an edge that would make you unique in the recruitment process. But I, I guess like it's, it's hard because, you know, when you go to other schools, I think I, what I've realized over the years is no matter what school you go to, there's going to be people who are more driven or less driven than others. The better schools generally have people who are generally more motivated to do something. And that allows them to kind of do have a lot of unique organizations, do a lot of like unique things that really help you kind of that really could shoot you into like superstar status like immediately and can like like help you out even if you're not doing that well but like on our school it's like it's you can't find those same individuals and i think that's my biggest like regret it's like i wanted to start this but you know the it's I, and i don't want to sound like i'm blaming anyone because everyone has their own path but like it's hard to find people with the same motivations Totally agree. And it's interesting looking back, you know, no matter what school you go to, I've realized, you know, you're going to get out what you put in. So like, it's gonna be, there's always gonna be people very driven. There's always gonna be some people who are lazy, whatever you put in, you're going to get out. Like you also said, you are a product of your environment. And so, you know, at certain schools, um, you know, very prestigious schools, there's definitely a better you know, percentage of students who are that more driven. Um, that want to go above and beyond there's schools where um, you know it's harder to search those people out and so i totally agree that was definitely you know one of the hard parts about figuring out whether or not to set up you know a separate organization along with you know obviously the financial um requirements and you know, having time you know being very busy as well <laughs> yeah no i i agree but the dream is still alive eventually we might make that like into an actual legitimate organization like we, I think what I've seen in business so far is that you have to have a long-term goal. And for me, that's like starting my own fund or like managing my own money and using like fundamental, fundamental research. But on the other hand, you know, you have to also be able to, there's, I don't know, finance is really about like trade-offs, like people really want you to suffer because that's, you know, it's, whether it be because you learn a lot, you develop as a character or whatever, but, you know, you look at kind of the different finance career paths, like 
the number one and most prominent career path, investment banking, is arguably the worst career path. You know, you're you're putting in what 100, 120 hours. Not to diss on your job, by the way, Jack, but uh, no worries. <laughs> but like you're putting in that much time, you barely sleep, you get to barely eat, do anything. And what what are you doing all day? You know, like you, you get to do modeling, but you know, what is that? That's just Excel and that gets old. And then you use PowerPoint and you know, like I've been, I talked to a few analysts before and they were like, yeah, man, I'm on five live deals. You know, you kind of just have to get through it. And I'm like, get through it. I, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I, I don't really know if that's, you know, for me, but like, you know, I, finance really is just kind of like, there really is, it's very difficult to kind of do what you want in the field. And so, you know, you have to be able to kind of have that long-term dream and vision of what you want to do. But I guess a lot of, there's also this really prevalent perception that you need to put in time and you need to like suffer a lot. And then, and then you get like a payoff and I'm like, that doesn't have to be the case, you know, like, you know, like if you think about a bank, if they hire like 20 more analysts, like that's really cheap for them. Like they make like what billions of dollars, 20 analysts is like 0.01% of that. And like, you know, a mat, like, but on the other hand, for work-life balance, that would make everyone's lives so much better. Yeah. And it's, I think there's definitely, especially in finance, like a false notion of a certain path you need to take mm -hmm. to be successful. And so I think like the industry has kind of convinced a lot of people that you have to do A, B, then C to get to D. Whereas mm -hmm. like, you know, I've seen other people who they started A and then, you know, they realize that that's not exactly the path they want to go down. Um, and, you know, they jump to C, D, maybe come back to B, but um, yeah, it's definitely hard keeping a marathon, um, mindset especially like in the beginning years when you're you know fresh out of college you, you don't know a lot and you're kind of just bouncing around for a few years trying to figure out you know where what do you actually want to do yeah direction you want to go in you know mm -hmm. you know i i agree because like on one hand ib gives you so much optionality but on the other hand it's like it is a big sacrifice like whether people admit it or not, yes, you get paid a lot, but you know, and you get to live in a city, yada, 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 but like that, that's cool. And like, it's, it's something I, I consider, you know, still in my job search and something that I've considered historically, but you know, I don't like, when is enough enough, you know, like, <laughs> like. I, I have an idea of what I want to do, but like finance is just so restrictive. Like if you do like investing, it's very hard to move to like corporate finance. If you do like, like banking has the most optionality, it's the most brutal. Like, I guess that's a premium, but like, why does it have to be that? Like, what's the, why is the sacrifice so big? Yeah. I've always wondered that too. And it's tough. Like you said, in finance, um, mm -hmm. if you have a. You can't just, it seems like you can't just start out doing exactly what you want to end up doing. Yeah. Like at least right now in high finance, there's a certain um, playing field that you have to navigate in order to get to where you want to go. So mm -hmm. very hard to go and just, you know, fundraise and 
you know, create a fund right away. Whereas it's almost like you're expected to endure, you know, a handful of really brutal years to start until you finally, you know, are afforded a little more freedom. Yeah. And that's like, like talking about the investment, uh, the, you know, career path for finance majors, like holistically, right. You, you major in finance, you graduate. If you're lucky, you go to like a bullish bracket doing like coverage or M and a, right. And then based on that, you're kind of already restricted and certain of your options, but let's say you go to like, most people go to PE, right? They go to PE or they go to down to corporate finance, corporate dev, or they continue. Like, like if you leave, like, and you go to corporate dev or corporate finance, you're good, you know, like work-life balance achieved. But if you keep going, right, you do two years in IB, suffer through it all, no sleep, two more years in PE, suffer through it, no sleep. Maybe you get your MBA, maybe you get promoted, but like, how long is it going to take for you to like, get to that end point? Like you want to manage money. That's the end goal, right? It could take you like from like, yes, it's two and two, but then it's like five, 10, you know, 15 potentially, or never, never. Most people don't make it in this industry. And I think that's not talked about enough. I totally agree. And it's interesting to see, um, you know, how you know, people might put off their dreams for a while to, you know, continue to follow the system. And it's interesting how, you know, they'll stay in a certain thing just to perhaps society looks upon it in a favorable light, or, you know, they think that going down a certain path, you know, around their peer circle and family, it looks good, but mm -hmm. just kind of like a, a rat race for years on years on. Yeah. 100%. And for better or worse, you know, like, I think at the end of the day, all of us really just want to be paid enough to live comfortably, have a bit of excitement in our lives and, you know, have options and be able to do what we want to do. And that's, I can't believe to say this, but that's a luxury, you know, like nowadays, but kind of looking back on it, what you said kind of made me think about like the past few years and our recruitment cycles, right? Like we've arguably this path has been really good for us as well, because it's pushed us to be really high achieving, like over the past few semesters, right. Or summers I've had, you know, an internship each summer and that like that amount and level of, of experience vastly out exceed, out exceeds like other comparable students at my school and same. And I think, you know, the same could be said for you. That's really pushed you to succeed, but. I, you know, the interview timeline nowadays is like, what, like you do freshman internship, sophomore internship, and before you even get your sophomore internship started, you are recruiting for your junior year internship, right? It's wild. Yeah. I remember it was second semester of sophomore year interviewing for the bulge bracket I'll be working at. And I was interviewing and even accepted an offer before I even had my sophomore summer internship lined up, like probably two months earlier. So it's just, it's ridiculous how, um, you know, far out in advance these firms are planning their new hires. Yeah, no, I remember cause it was that, I, cause we interviewed for the same place and you were lucky I wasn't, but also cause you, <laughs> you knew the VP, but um, 
I had, remember this one day where I did an 8 a.m. like interview. Then I had the three rounds with that bulge racket that we both interviewed for. And then I had to drive down to um, the city near us to interview for another sophomore inter internship, you know, and I, like the recruitment process, like it, it felt really rewarding because you were considered and like a lot of people were interviewing, but at the same time, you know, looking at it now from my perspective and, you know, I think it's like 188 companies now I've applied to, like, I did the math the other day. It's like, I got maybe like 12 or 13, like actual, you know, in-person first round interviews. And then what is that? Like, that's like 6% um, of all the interviews. And like, you know, you know, my background, it's like, I've done a lot of great work, but the fact that I've only gotten 6% and it's like, it just shows you how tough this, like the interviewing and like, it gets really tiring from my perspective. Cause like every week I send out like five to 10 applications. I'm constantly scanning for any new jobs. Like for me, it's like, I wish I could be paid like, you know, engineering. I think they get paid like 80 to a hundred and, you know, yes, their coursework is harder, but like, you know, they don't have to work that hard. <laughs> yeah. And it's and the other thing about finance that's interesting is that I feel like it's the one major where you have to do a lot outside of the classroom. So, yeah. so, you know, other business majors, like accounting, marketing, even just other majors in general, like. Like you said, engineering, chemistry, if you want to do medicine, um, all the work you put in is in the class. And so when you're done with all your classwork, you can kind of sit back and relax. But with finance, it's almost like a 24 seven grind, you know, having to do things in the class academically, as well as at a class, you know, self-improvement career stuff. Um, so that makes it really hard as well. No, I, I agree. Cause I remember the night that we like. It was like, I, like everyone else at school, like they get, you know, a weekend, they're like, oh, I'm going out. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I got to spend my weekend, you know, grinding it out in the library basement um, with my bros. But like, it was like, I'm like doing schoolwork. I am applying to internships. I'm doing intern interview prep. I'm, you know, doing all the work for the student orgs I'm a part of for my job. And it's just like, like you have to do like finance as a major just by itself isn't enough. Like you need to do like, you need to have clubs, you need to be a leader. You need to do like have internships before you get an internship. And then you need to do all this prep and then you get like a 1% chance of getting the job. And it's like, that's, that's like, that's rough. And like, it's, it's reward. Like people, people who are older are always like, yeah, it'll be like, it's a tough experience to get what you want, but it'll teach you a lot. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great. But <laughs> you know, like how much do I have to suffer in the moment? Like, like if it's this hard, just getting the job, how hard is the job itself? You know? Yeah. And I've always debated that too. And it almost seems like the job is going to be easier than getting it. <laughs> at this at this day and age um and it's interesting i just just as you were talking i was kind of thinking like all the extra work that you have to put in as a finance major is also one of the reasons why you know we become so high achieving and successful in the long run because we've had to do a lot of things we've had to be you know, constantly moving you can't really sit still and so mm -hmm. being a part of that system has 
made us suffer, but at the same time, it's also, um, you know, benefited us as well and made us rise to the occasion. I agree. I agree. But when, you know, it's like the treadmill analogy, like when do you get off the treadmill, you know, and I, I mean, I guess that's, that's something we both will have to grapple with eventually, but <laughs> maybe not for you. I mean, I don't know how you can do it, but you can go through a lot of suffering. Um, I don't know. I don't think I've, I, don't, I haven't gone through as much as you. Oh, perhaps that, that's, that's heartwarming. Why. <laughs> perhaps that's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. Well, you know, I think that's, you know, that's a good place to kind of end our conversation on school and we can kind of transition to uh, talking about stock. Okay, so kind of moving on to our market discussion a little bit, you know, today's been really rough. I think today's what February 12th, the market's beating me down, but, um, you know, kind of looking over the long term. I wanted to talk about kind of three key areas that I saw were pretty interesting. Like for me, that was restaurants, fintech, and renewables. And I know you have a pretty big renewables background. Um, so I'll kind of start off at a high level about restaurants and fintech, and then we'll save the best for last. Sounds good. Yeah. So in terms of restaurants, uh, to kind of frame it, everyone knows with the COVID-19 pandemic that restaurants kind of have been really beaten up like you every time you kind of look at the news you'll hear oh this chain is selling like 400 closing 400 stores or something like that or small mom and pop restaurants aren't going to make it and for me you know i i agreed like back looking back now in august when i was finishing up my internship that a lot of restaurants were in a very tough position but you know, there you have to kind of think over the long term, right? What is a what restaurants are going to remain and what restaurants are not, right? Is McDonald's going to go out of business because, you know, because of COVID? Probably not. Like you're probably if like besides the dining restrictions, if you can like go through drive-through or pickup or whatever delivery, you're probably still going to want to like eat at McDonald's. But you know, so in terms of kind of that framing, you know. I think the restaurant industry back in August was really kind of discounted. And for me, I, instead of kind of looking at how the restaurant industry is currently formatted, I kind of looked at where it's going in the long term, right? What are the most popular restaurants nowadays, right? Obviously Popeyes had that huge chicken craze, but you know, in terms of kind of what people if would normally eat uh, like a, you know, a normal day, right? Would you go prefer like, you know, going to, you know, Chick-fil-A if, you know, if you don't care about what's going on with them, Shake Shack and Chipotle, or would you go to like McDonald's and, you know, uh, KFC? And like, I think that fast food nowadays and what has been will remain. Like, I think that McDonald's, KFC, they're, they're, they offer value to a lot of people. They're very cheap, kind of like a cheat meal. And I think that's like, you, you, what's your favorite restaurant, Jack? Oh, um, I don't have a specific in particular, but big fan of McDonald's, Taco Bell, Five Guys. Yeah, exactly. Excluding Five Guys, because they're technically fast casual, but mm. McDonald's and, and Taco Bell, 
those are like fast food that have been around a while. You don't necessarily think of them for their health benefits, right? And you probably go, like you, when you eat it, you know you're like putting like pretty, you, you know you're not eating the greatest thing all the time. Yeah, right? You know you're not, you're not eating for your body. Exactly. You're not eating healthy. But then, you know, there's so many fast casual restaurants where, you know, although there's kind of like fast casual and then a sub-segment is Better Burger and Better Burger includes like In-N-Out, Chick-fil-A, uh, not Chick-fil-A, but Five Guys and Shake Shack. You know that the quality of their product is more. You're going to be paying a bit more and you know that. But I think that with how society is kind of going, people aren't eating fast food every day anymore. I mean, some people are, but not everyone. When you go, you're often going to have to kind of debate, like, like if you go in fewer times, you may be more willing to spend more, right? So like, that's why I think like fast casual and better burgers, like they have more of a place in the future of the restaurant industry than I think normal fast food. Like, don't get me wrong. McDonald's, like, I enjoy kind of going there and kind of eating their burgers when I'm like super hungry. But like, if I had to choose between McDonald's and like Shake Shack, which is like a personal favorite, I would have gone with like Shake Shack, right? And like, I'm spending like, I'm spending more. Like it's objectively true, but like I go, I don't even, I don't go out to eat that much. And so it's like in the long run, you know, it, I'm probably spending less going to fast casual than if I went to fast food more often. I definitely agree. And, um, you know, if you're going to a, like a QSR like McDonald's every day and you're spending, you know, two bucks and you go, you know, every day before work or whatever, you know, that's 10 bucks by Friday. But if you're going to Shake Shack, you know, once a week, get a burger for six or seven bucks, like you said, you're definitely saving money. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting the, the, you know, the, what is it, the fast serve? Fast casual, yeah. Yeah, the fast casual. It's interesting how they offer that dual flexibility of a dine-in restaurant, like an Arby's and Olive Garden, coupled with the fast service of like a McDonald's. And so I think mm -hmm. that's definitely something very appealing to consumers, as well as the shift to a more health-conscious um, lifestyle that I think the millennials kind of started and are going to continue mm -hmm. throughout all ages. And so I think those are, you know, additional factors that are definitely going to propel that part of the restaurant industry forward. Yeah, because it's like it's a cultural thing more than anything now. It's like if you ask someone like, like, do you want to go out to eat? You know, you don't want to say like, you want to go grab some McDonald's? Like, unless you're like, it's, you know, it's 12 p.m. on a Friday night and you need to like, like no other restaurants are open, right? Like, but if you were like, hey, you want to go grab Chipotle? People are like, yeah, let, let's go. You know, like you don't feel like it's, you know, like it's marginally healthier, better, you know, it's better products going into it and it's tail tastes great. So it's like, I think, you know, in the long run, there's going to be a shift towards kind of this model where you have fast service, better food. It's not full service, right? It's not like the $400 meals in New York, but it's, you know, it's, it's still a bit pricey, but it's like, more it's better than mcdonald's and people are more willing to kind of socialize and go out and eat there 100 percent. i think it's a it's really the best of both worlds on both sides of the table and like you said it's really uh it's more of a social experience it's definitely a culture shift rather yeah. than anything else 
-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, market research from Ibis World actually shows that. And it's like fast food is growing, but it's growing because of fast casual, not because of uh, not because of uh, <laughs> traditional fast food. And, you know, I guess the last thing I'll talk about is really like the franchise kind of model that has been really prevalent nowadays. I think it's a really great model because, you know, for investors wise, this holding company business gets like money for almost nothing. It's like dirt cheap, high margins, right? But I think that's like, for some cases, like you have to think about what the store is really trying to do, right? Like for a Wingstop, for a McDonald's, those businesses, like, and I'm just kind of pulling from our experience at our school, like when we go to any of those, those really are not places that people would eat a meal at. They would kind of go there for like a snack, right? And like, you know, you kind of just order it. It's, it's not that cheap. It's still kind of pricey, but you order it, you get it, you eat it. But like you also, that's like at 9 p.m. when you're like starting. Um, and then like you look at these other restaurants like Chipotle and like those are places people go now go to eat meals. Like, and the thing with like fast casual, like you look at many of the fast casual restaurants nowadays and I think the best are still very much so company operated because you have more control over the supply chain. You have more control over the quality, the culture. Culture is something that I think people overlook a lot. It's like, if your business has like a culture, whether it be internal employee or even customer culture, like that takes time to foster. And there's really no culture for McDonald's, right? Like, unless you include like <laughs> drunk 9 PM, like <laughs> McDonald's <laughs> runs, like, that's really like you kind of go, you know, it's, it's not, there's no culture behind it. And I think there's this rising culture of like eating with others. Right. And you go, you do that at places that are a bit better, a little bit pricier, but not too much to break the bank and you enjoy it. And I think that's having company operated stores allows you to get that. And I think I've seen that more often at company operated stores potentially than some of the franchises. This is just opinion, you know, I'm not saying there's like a huge difference, but I think in terms of kind of where the industry is going that I think company operated has a huge place to stay, even if the margins are lower than franchise restaurants. I totally agree. I think from an investor point of view, you rather, you know, put capital into the restaurants that are on the franchise model, uh, consumer standpoint, like you said, there's a much better atmosphere and cultural experience with others when you're going to a company operated um, store. So yeah. it'll be interesting how that plays out in the future and if there will be a shift among um, investors. Yeah, no, I agree. Anyway, kind of pivoting a little bit to a completely unrelated, well, not really unrelated sector, FinTech. And specifically, I'm talking a little bit, you know, it's FinTech, it's been really popular lately. It's pretty vague, um, but, you know, a lot of it, I think, has been companies really supporting kind of the back end behind the scenes. I think the two most popular companies nowadays for fintech are Shopify and Square, uh, maybe Stripe too. Um, but 
These are technology companies really changing up how financial services are served, done, processed on the back end, all of that. And oh, I forgot Robinhood and Venmo. Yeah, those two. Can't forget those. Yeah, I can't forget those. Really changing up, you know, how how you invest as a retail investor and also how you know you send money or receive money from people. And I think like kind of jumping off of that, right? Like fintech is really for better or worse, really changed how business, how businesses kind of and individuals utilize and move their money. Because before Venmo, right? If you want to split a check with someone, you know, you'd have to hand two credit cards, it'd be a pain for like the waiter. And then sometimes it's like, you know, they're like, oh, I'll pay you back. And it's like, you know, I don't have my wallet on me. And it's like, now with Venmo, you can request them. They can pay you immediately. Like, it's so much easier. Like, there's always that, there was that cultural thing where it's like, you know, do you ask someone to pay you back or not? And now, now it's just like, yeah, just Venmo me the money. Right. And like, there's no excuse and you get your money. And, um, I think like finance FinTech, you know, it's really done a lot to kind of help improve some unique issues in our kind of uh, regular day life and also offer a lot more kind of opportunities. But I think it's also, you know, a lot of it in my mind is small companies really being acquired to kind of help support some very niche backend uh, service that a larger financial institution is having. I totally agree. And, you know, following more macro themes of it, you know, the way the financial industry has been for so long, it's kind of been set in stone by, you know, certain key players. And so there's been talks in recent years of, you know, disintermediation and kind of cutting out the middle guy, whether it's tech, shadow banking, um, you know, it's made consumers' lives a lot better. And as we enter that industry, I'm excited to see how it's going to transform and also how the work we thought we would be doing might change because of um, different technologies coming into play. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, I think looking at it now, it's like I was interning for one of the largest financial institutions on the world back my sophomore year. And it wasn't anything fancy, but, you know, looking internally at the business, a lot of what I saw was like issues and problems that were starting to be addressed by technology companies. And like, for me, that was like, I was like, whoa, ding, you know, light bulb. If a company as big as this needs, you know, help on the technology front, you know, that's a huge market. But on the other hand, you know, you're not going to find a lot of like, in terms, I think that you see a lot of, it's very difficult to see, to understand and see the B2B companies that are offering services to businesses. I think that's where a lot of the money and has been going. You definitely see the B2C side with like, you know, Venmo, Robinhood, those sorts of things. But like on, you know, the back end side, like Shopify and Square barely count, you know, and they're the ones operating like these payment of service options, which really help to kind of help a business run their day to day, whether it be processing transactions, accounting for them, accounting for taxes, keeping a record, inventory management, like 
these are really backend systems. Like people recognize them because they're like the card scanners and card swipers. And, you know, they're the people know about them from the news that they're the ones setting up these online shopping carts for companies. But you also don't, you don't see a lot of what they do is like they help really run a business and also help to kind of process transactions through Stripe in Shopify's case. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, in insure tech, right? A lot of them are like specific software products or solutions or whatever on the back end that really help to kind of make the uh, go-to-market more efficient, help to make their risk assessments more accurate. Like it's very vague, opaque stuff that I don't think, unless you were really following the space, you would really appreciate. I totally agree. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm on the student managed fund for our school's endowment. And so we've, there's been a couple of sort of back-end focused equities like Citrix Workplaces, mm -hmm. um, LAM Research that, like you said, do some of the back-end stuff and technology origination. And I think that that's going to be, you know, at least I think going forward, that's definitely going to be a hot space. Um, you know, I think obviously the, B, the B2C stuff will remain popular, but I think there's definitely been some underappreciation of those back-end services. Yeah, no, and I, I'm, I'm <laughs> for better or worse, I think as, you know, as a consumer, you know, you and I are both consumers at the same time. I still appreciate B2C a bit more, but there's always, I think, you know, you think about who has more money right now. It's like, is my pocket or, you know, some big company like Goldman Sachs, who has bigger pockets, you know, yeah. probably them, right? They and they benefit a lot more because like businesses can buy business products and stuff like that. So, you know, at the end of the day, like you need a lot of me to equal one of Goldman Sachs or something like that. Right. So I don't know, like moving forward, I guess, I think FinTech, there will be a continuation of a strong focus on like B2B enterprise focused businesses that offer you know, data solutions, data management, other kind of tools and software that help businesses. But, you know, on, on my hand, I'm, I always find B2C companies in hot operating spaces, like very endearing just because it's easier to understand. And I think investors also find it easier to understand because at the end of the day, if I was to say something like data lake or, you know, like some API and how that's routed through blah, 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 blah. Like that's very technical. And I think people, I don't think a lot of people get that and for better or worse, right? For, <laughs> I think that'll impact the investment as well. Oh, definitely. Like you said, you see easier to understand and we see a direct tangible impact from what that company does. 100%. Yeah, and it's like on a customer scale, it's easier to estimate. Like you estimate on a, per subscriber or per customer basis, like it's like if you have a subscription plat, like for Shopify, you know, you're selling to like other businesses, like on the, it's the same idea there, but it's like, it's almost like you, you understand the market better when it's in the form of like people, like individuals, like if you think of like, um, uh, Netflix, for example, right? You're looking at individuals and 
you're thinking to yourself, how many people will subscribe to Netflix, you know, this year, this period. On the other hand, you're looking at like, you know, a business and you're like, how many businesses need this? How much are they going to pay for it? And then, you know, okay, they're going to pay this much. How, how is that going to, you know, it depends on the subscribers brought in. Like there's, it's a similar concept, but I think at the end of the day, like it's easier to understand the ultimate bottom line consumer impact than the business impact, because I think on the business side, on the business side, <laughs> I guess it's just, they, they don't, it's harder to understand the use cases at times without knowing totally. the business. Totally agree. It's definitely, it's definitely easier to estimate us, you know, like you said, per consumer versus per business. I mean, if you think like Disney has what they just announced, they have 95 million people or so using Disney plus, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's easy to estimate, oh, well, you know, how many football stadiums is that? And so kind of just think of it like in that sense. So you're, you're definitely, I totally agree with you. Yeah, for sure. It's like on the business side, it could be 300 people or 500,000, you know, so it's like more variability. I don't know. Like, and then the traffic can be, the, I don't know, whatever. Kind of moving on from fintech, well, let's talk a little bit about renewal. So you have a pretty, I wouldn't say pretty extensive because that means you're like you're 45, but you have yeah, experience. <laughs> <laughs> you have experience with the renewable sector. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, your work over the summer, um, what you looked at, and what you kind of see the renewable sector moving forward. Definitely. So, well, after my sophomore year, I interned at a commodities trading firm. And so mm -hmm. to see a lot of the fossil fuel side of the energy business. And then this past summer at the bullish bracket, I'm going to be working at, I was in their alternative energy finance group. And so working with, um, you know, they offer a lot of different products, but, you know, the main topic is renewables. And so I've kind of seen both sides of the coin and, you know, going forward, you know, there's definitely going to be a transition to renewables, but in the meantime, we're still going to need some of those cleaner burning fossil fuels like natural gas um, and hydrogen to kind of help us parlay our way there. Mm -hmm. I think on the alternative side, the biggest question, the biggest thing I looked at over the summer was um, storage. Mm -hmm. A lot of these renewables, you know, the wind isn't always blowing, the sun isn't always shining. And so how can we capture that energy during peak hours in the middle of the day and harvest that for, you know, whenever it comes home from school and work at night. And so I think going forward, um, you know, there's going to be a large focus on batteries and other energy storage technologies. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I think, I think it is where we're going, where we need to go. I think it's going to be, it's difficult. Like the transition is going to be very difficult. I think infrastructure and you know battery storage it's probably one of the most difficult things like you can like there's so much land like in the u.s that you can like you can build wind turbine farms for sure you can build solar farms for sure but the problem is how do you like if you're if it's nighttime you're not getting any energy right how do you kind of fix that issue about like the thing is it's like 
these technologies generate a ton of energy. Like we, we, like, it's not the problem that, you know, a solar panel doesn't generate energy, right? They generate ex- enormous amounts. We can't capture it. Um, yeah. We can't hold it. Like we get it. It's state, we have it. And then the battery runs out in like an hour or something. Right. And so like that transition is very difficult. And I think, you know, I don't know, like, have you heard of any companies working on kind of, you know, storage technologies? Yeah, there's, um, so obviously there's different batteries. So cobalt batteries, lithium ion, nickel halide, but then there's also different, um, storage technologies, uh, Mm -hmm. that use, you know, gravity based solutions, um, hydro based solutions, um, other types of. Um, batteries that are more like industrial grade, Primus Power, I know, ESS Incorporated, um, Storage Vault. So there's a lot of different storage technologies that are being uh, researched and developed, and there's a lot of capital going into there. But um, at the same time, a lot of those, a lot of those storage alternatives are more um, intensive, and so the name of the game is really. How much energy can you store in the smallest amount of space? Yeah, like you can store a ton of energy if you have a huge battery, but that doesn't mean it's the most effective or efficient. Exactly, exactly. Kind of what we've seen with you know the, the car industry recently. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting because you know obviously recently with cobalt, there's been a cobalt shortage, and then that's made a chip shortage. I mean, I guess that's a different area, but ultimately, a lot of technologies nowadays rely on the same sort of like materials. And that's honestly kind of scary if you think about it, right? Like, you know, I know back in the day, it's like iron, bronze and stuff like that. But like, there's, these are like precious metals, very, like very specific materials necessary for like our day-to-day devices, like even for like our cell phone and our laptop. And I guess like, I don't know, man. I feel like moving forward, it's gonna, it's like you need, you need to be able to recycle existing technology and hardware because you know they're, you have to find a way to do it, or else like, I don't know if the Earth generates like unlimited amounts of cobalt, but you know at least it takes several years to do that, and you have to dig deep, maybe. Um, on the second hand, it's like you need like, you need an a, a an economy that's willing to kind of adopt these technologies, which I think we've seen with like electric vehicles. And then you need like the infrastructure to store, to recharge, to like transmit all of this energy. And it's, it's exciting. Um, this is like, if we can do it, I think, you know, this will be, this will destroy the fossil fuel and, you know, the fossil fuel industry. Like on the other hand, it's like, it's going to take a few years. It's not instantaneous. Um, but I think in the long run, people should remember that, you know, I think that there, I don't know about you, Jack, but there's been, you know, the weather recently has been pretty bad. Um, but like, you know, you look at like, I think, was it Venezuela, Nicaragua, that one coast that got hit by two hurricanes at the same Mm. time, like. I think there is a societal push 
by some members to go towards kind of a cleaner future and clean energy has you know, a big part to play in that. On the other hand, I think that, you know, there's the fossil fuel energy does have a lot of jobs. It's really important. I think it's really essential part of our current economy. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough issue to grapple with. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely. I think that we're starting to see more public opinion sway in the direction of, you know, we have to make that transition. Mm -hmm. As part of that transition is like building the technologies and the infrastructure. And then I think when it comes to like society and politics, we have to stop demonizing both, um, you know, the alternative energy side and the established fossil fuel side. And we have to kind of teach that, you know, we're going to need both players come together if we really want to make this transition happen. And we're going to, we're obviously going to need fossil fuels until we make that transition. And, uh, you know, people in society have to realize that making the transition to renewables can be extremely beneficial um, for everyone. Yeah, long-term longevity of generation upon generation. Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues really is jobs, right? Because I think I think it's it's so difficult now to kind of transition to different jobs. Like, I think back in the day, you know, I think with like the Lyndon B. Johnson's, uh, what was it called? The the New Deal. New Deal. There's a lot of wow. kind of like job training opportunities yeah. there. And I just, you know, with higher education being so expensive, it's really difficult or like there's, you know, an age bias nowadays, you know, people don't want people with too much experience. Like, yeah, it's difficult to transition from one job. Like ideally in my mind, the fossil fuel companies, the existing ones will take the lead on transitioning to renewables. Like they'll start to teach more people the skill set necessarily, you know, they'll start to you know, start to diversify their energy production. I think that would be ideal. And like we saw with Exxon recently that they had like an activist investor really push them to like transition faster. And I think that if that would be, I think the best option available to them, cause like at the end of the day, it's like business and finance has always been innovate or die, you know, like you know, looking back at it now, right? Like Netflix, Blockbuster, um, Spotify, you know, iTunes. <laughs> um, what what other things? Like you, you could arguably say YouTube potentially killed the movie industry um, yeah. a little bit. I mean, they still have a big place of Amazon. Definitely, definitely right? network like, television. They definitely, yeah. yeah. No, so, I totally, 100% agree. And exactly. And you've seen some established players like Dominion Energy, who largely was like, um, you know, natural gas, and you know they've been offloading some of their pipelines, um, in the effort to um, kind of get off the fossil fuel train a little bit, and you know, use some of that money to invest into cleaner fuels. And so I think I hundred percent agree with you that you know the best way to make this transition more seamlessly as well as quicker and at less cost is to see the big boys. Um, step up to the play and do their part. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that, I think one of the issues is money, right? And I, as an investor, right, 
I appreciate dividends and share buybacks and stuff like that because that that ultimately comes into my pocket. On the other hand, businesses, I think that financial engineering really ruined a lot of businesses. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for it because you know when you become a big established business, you you should start to pay dividends, do share buybacks because that's really where you're going to add more value. On the other hand, you have to keep money in reserve because, you know, you have to look at kind of what's changing, what's going to be the future of your industry. And you have to, like, what made those companies so great is they predicted it and, or they were some of the first people to kind of go in that industry or the most established. They were able to build up the largest market share, develop the best product or service right? Like once they become mature, a lot of companies, you know, if you think of like that, like life cycle charts, like, you know, you have early stage growth, mature, and then, you know, decline. Yeah. Like pe people have to remember mature lasts only so long. Yeah. There is going to be a decline period and you can either let it die or try and turn things around. And you need to be able to be always on top of what is changing. What is, what's, where is my industry going and have money ready and people ready and investments ready to move in that space. You have to take as a big business, you have to take a few chances and you have to have set aside money for that. And I think a lot of businesses aren't doing that enough nowadays to set aside money to really think about, you know, yes, it may be 10 years, 20 years down the line when these changes start to become big but then there's going to be new changes like if you don't continue to try to innovate and change yourself if you a lot of money nowadays is going to kind of try and keep things as they are and you often can't because like technology like even looking at technology technology is what embodies it is the fact that it brings about change right and people want some want to have a better life, you want better things, change continues. Like you can't expect the same thing to always work forever. And I think that's really, uh, that's really, if you look at Disney, one of the most well-known, long-established media brands on the planet, what were they known for? Their animated films, cool. Their, then they opened theme parks, cool. Then, you know, Netflix, was supposed to be like a Disney killer. What did they do? They were one of the first people, you know, outside of Netflix to kind of make their own content, a subscription based content. Right. And they've been really rewarded with it. 95 million subscribers as of today. And, you know, those are the type of risks you need to take. Like, yes, but because like at that point, it's something like, Arguably, you could say Disney was forced to do it, blah, 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 blah. They've added more kind of new shows and, you know, they, they understand what consumers want and what's different. They're not sticking to the normal media release schedule of like, you know, one movie per year. You know, they're like, yeah, we're going to run like 12 different shows at the same time on our platform. That's something like outside of like, you know, the Disney Channel, which they did on TV, they haven't done in a while. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think 
sort of related to that. I think the whole pandemic kind of showed companies that weren't saving enough money. Um, you know, those companies that didn't have a lot on their balance sheet, you know, they had a much harder time last March and, you know, throughout the spring and summer, you know, because they kept, you know, like you said, financial engineering distributions to shareholders. And so I think, uh, if a lot of these companies can foster a saving mindset with capital, um, and instead of returning value to shareholders quarterly, instead return that value to shareholders after, you know, large innovations and stuff, yeah. I think benefit obviously investors, but it's going to help society move forward in general. I think, I think in part as investors, we have unfortunately a part to play in this because we always look at quarterly earnings. What do quarterly earnings tell you? How the company performed in three months. Yeah. If you ever worked on a project, like even for school, a school project, which is meaningless, by the way, can often take an entire semester, right? And, you know, investors have historically and are starting to less so now penalize companies that make these big long-term investments because they want short-term gains. And you have to remember that investing is about investing for the future. You're trying to figure out what company is going to be the essential companies, you know, that are building up that future world, you know, and you're putting, like, it's about putting money to them rather than the companies that will, that are, you know, yes, they're paying you money, which is great. Yeah, that's nice. But like, at the end of the day, you know, you're probably going to make a bit more off of like, you know, finding companies that are kind of all going to be key companies in that future world than, you know, being paid a 0.56 dividend yield or something like that. Right. And hundred percent. I think more investors definitely have to do adopt a longer term value mindset and, you know, looking at the Pepsis and the alphabets of the world versus, you know, can I make a quick buck here on GameStop? You know, or can I just, should I invest in a company just because they have a 4% dividend versus they have wild innovation for the next dozen years? Right. And two ideas I had were like, you look at Apple, right? They, I don't think they paid a dividend for years, right? All of it went back into the company to kind of really help them develop into the market leader they are today. You know, Apple started paying a dividend. I don't know when, but like. Yes, the dividend is helpful. Yes, it adds value, but like, you know, you're trying to find the company who's going to be the next Apple. But if let's say, let's say this, if a company is already mature, what do they need to do? Right? Like they're already paying dividends. They have a lot of capital they can utilize. Arguably, like I understand from a CEO perspective, it's very difficult to make capital allocation decisions. Like. You need to put money to use or else it's not being used. Right. Yeah. And I, a lot of times it goes into paying out shareholders because, you know, some projects don't have the necessary, like they don't hit the necessary metrics. I would argue that, that, that sh sh I think at the mature stage, it is fine to pay dividends and buy back shares and return value to shareholders that way. Cause like you, they are the owners of the company. However, I would say that there potentially needs to be more investment on the mature side. Like you, you have to imagine this, a company like, 
I don't know which with Coca Cola, right? Yeah, a company like Coca Cola, established brand, established supply, you know that sort of thing, pays a certain dividend. Investors, you know, they're really not buying it for its growth potential, but for its dividend. You have to understand that companies are the value of a company is dependent upon market perception of their product in the current present and what they expect in the future. Arguably, we've seen historically that if a company isn't able to innovate, like I'm trying to think of a company that like died, like a blo blockbuster. Blockbuster, yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. Were they public? <laughs> um, ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> anyway, so you know they're being paid a dividend, and that's like you know what four bucks or something. I don't know whatever right and but like investors like arguably it's very difficult to grow a company that's already as big as coca-cola like nowadays there's that mindset that it's really easy to grow market cap you know from 1 trillion to 2 trillion is as quick as like 100 billion to 500 billion but like in that mindset like yeah let's just assume that in, you know their market cap remains the same right or they're trying to, they're not trying to become, you know, a $1 trillion company. They're just trying to, you know, maintain, you know, in order to maintain, you need to innovate. Like, like if you don't, you start to lose market share, your market cap falls. Like, yes, you're paying a dividend, but in the long run, investors want to know that this is a company I can hold. Like, even if they're holding it for the dividend, they're like, I want to know that this is a company I can hold that over the next few years that I hold it, that it'll have, it'll be paying me a dividend. Yeah. But it's also like innovating. Yeah. Like arguably you could say that that stock change has been, has paid a lot more recently, at least recently than dividends have. And you know, what do you think of the companies with the biggest dividends, right? Like AT&T mining companies, like these are companies that forced to offer dividends in order to retain shareholders. And I don't know, it's just like, I feel like there's, I, I haven't quite gotten to the point that I'm trying to make, but you want, like investors still want a company. They don't want to just invest in a company that pays money to them. They want to invest in a company, like even if for dividends, that's going to last. Strategic. Yeah. It's like, then I think at some point, there needs to be investment, even from mature companies, whether to be, whether it's about growing, continuing to grow, or just even, you know, innovating to maintain their market presence. I think that's the point I'm trying to make is like, they need investment. And I think you look at some of the biggest companies nowadays, like Kraft Heinz, they're, they were like underinvested severely for several yeah. years. Look what happened to them, right? Yeah, I'd love to do a study on a company that, like a public company that, you know, eventually ended up, you know, declaring bankruptcy or, you know, it died. And I'd love to see mm -hmm. their R&D expenditures, like, like even just looking at it on a graph throughout their lifetime to see if it follows that, that life lifestyle curve of a company to see like, you know, when you're at the mature stage, you know, how much, how much are you putting into capital expenditures and R&D to continually innovate, you know? 
Yeah. Like I understand it's very difficult at that stage to do anything because it's like, you're trying to shift the needle on, you know, attached to like a, a car. Right. And it's like, it's very difficult, but you know, looking at it now, it's like, like most companies aren't like, what is like the most prominent idea nowadays? Cut costs, you know, like cost cut, cost cut, cost cut. Why? Like, and yeah, like you make the company more efficient, but you also potentially strip off like innovation, resources, that sort of thing. And I think that's like, it's a balance that mature companies especially need to run because, you know, cost synergies only bring you so far. Acquisitions historically, generally, unless they're very small strategic acquisitions, don't work out that well for shareholders. Like where are you going to put the money? Like try to do like, if you look at the fastest growing companies nowadays, like I remember like Shopify is like almost $172 billion in market cap. And I know it's just market cap, right? But if you think about them historically, or even in the rising health tech industry, most of those companies are negative, right? Like they don't have, they have negative net income, negative earnings, potentially negative cash flow because they're investing in themselves a lot, but like they're valued at like $200 billion, you know, like that's cr like, if you were trying to see where people are allocating their money, they're allocating some money to companies who are really developing the future. That's what I would say. I totally agree. And I think, you know, there's been kind of, like you said, there's definitely been companies chasing inorganic growth instead of like, instead of the true, real, innovative, organic growth, like you mentioned, Shopify, um, and, you know, others in the health tech space, FinTech space. And so I think there's eventually gonna have to be a shift in mindset that you can only inorganically grow so much. Mm -hmm. You stop. Yeah. And, you know, I remember like McKinsey, right? You read the valuation book. In their first few chapters, it's return on invested capital versus growth, right? Yes, you need to find the, the opportunities that have, you know, the highest ROIC, the highest growth, but like, I, like not all act, like acquisitions generally, I think, I, I can't remember. I don't know if you remember, but it was generally like for the McKinsey thing, like acquisitions did not generally have, um, you know, a high ROIC, right? Yeah, it's I like, remember, I don't remember the exact figure, but I, yeah, I remember discussing how, you know, an acquisitive nature by companies won't always yield the, you know, their projected or, you know, desired growth or ROI or ROIC going forward. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree. I Okay, here I found it. So there's a chart in McKinsey's valuation book, which is like one chart growth, one chart, or like one axis growth on the Y, one axis ROIC, and it's like, and then with higher, and this is like growth and ROIC into value, right? You are, yes, like in terms of kind of higher ROIC, higher ROIC, higher growth generally means more value. So like, yeah, finding really good investment opportunities is really good. On the other hand, like 
just growing for the sake of growing, you know, pursuing growth at maximum, not like not really caring about what you're investing in that has pretty low like value. And so, you know, in that sense, like it is, it is a tight balance. Like I think a lot of companies nowadays are investing, are growing just to grow. And like, that's not an efficient use of capital. Like, you know, improve your product, improve your service, do something different, you know, add value somewhere, tackle a new problem. Right. And I think that's where, I, I don't know, maybe that's like a big issue that a lot of companies just really can't figure out what to put their money towards. But I have the feeling that a lot of them don't really have that problem. Like they're not investing in their people as much, you know, they're not investing in their technology or whatever. It's like, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's, you know, that's a pretty big detriment to the value of each investment that people are, that companies are looking at. And I think there needs to be a shift in mindset around what, how, you know, really finding great investments that'll help grow the company. Cause like, even with a low growth rate, a high return on the invested capital will generate far more, you know, you know, uh, value than just kind of growing with, you know, just putting money anywhere. Finding those option options is really difficult, but, you know, an acquisition generally isn't the best option. Like you can see that with share prices and when an acquisition is announced, right? Like sometimes they're really good. And I, th I think that's, you know, good, but I mean, remember we were looking at what, like, um, what was that? Uh, beer company we were looking at. Oh, um, Craft Brew Alliance. Yeah, Craft Brew Alliance acquired by um, Anheuser Busch. Anheuser Busch, right? And we knew it was going to be acquired, but this you know smaller company, easier to kind of like, yeah, smaller, easier to grow, better able to make strategic, higher ROIC investments. You know, was it a good acquisition by Anheuser Busch? Maybe, I don't know, like, it's hard to tell, but like, it's, you know, nowadays it's, I, I can understand the difficulties CEOs have and I have a greater appreciation for it, but, you know, I think companies need to refocus where they're trying to add value because, you know, cost cutting is a very low value add and like, yes, it helps grow the company, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, any, any last thoughts on this? I think we're, we're coming um, up on time. <laughs> yeah, I'd say the only thing I'd add is just you have to add value. <laughs> you, companies have to find a way to add value to their employees, their customers, society in general. And I think if they <laughs> have a mindset of you know, being a value add, in the long run, they're going to succeed. Yeah, no, I think, I think so too. And they'll, that'll make them better companies in the long run as well. 100%. Got it. Well, anyway, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and record one of these super long conversations with me. Maybe I'll grab a hold of you for another one in the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, maybe, maybe before you start full time or else like, I won't be able to grab you ever. I know it was good. Well, maybe uh, it would have to be like 2am. Oh my gosh. That would suck. Saturday night. I know. I'll have tough. to live on the West Coast for that to work for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's true. Anyway, but thank you again, Jack. And thank you to our audience. Um, if I don't know if we'll have one, but 
you know, thank you. If you are taking the time to listen to it, I hope you enjoyed, you know, let me know if you like this kind of banter conversation with me and Jack. I definitely think for me personally, a co-host is better than me monologuing. Uh, but let me know if there's a comment section. I don't really know. Um, anyway, I will see you guys in another, whenever, whenever I record another one. <laughs> so thanks everyone. everyone. <laughs>